The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with some great friends. But first, I'll introduce America's primary care physician, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how are you doing tonight? I'm great, Matt. Excited to be doing a hot cake. I feel like it's been like half a year since we've done one. So it's nice to actually I think that's go back to literature pretty true. and catch yeah. up. Yeah. At least a quarter of a year. Uh, and with us tonight, the great Dr. Rahul Ganatra. He is our, you know, I guess our resident epidemiologist, our... Paul, is he a whiz kid? I, I, yeah, I how do you describe fair. Rahul? Oh, stop. Well, it's not because we already have a hospital's whiz kid. Wunderkind? Is that? Oh, yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. Excellent. Yeah. Although I, do, I don't want to be associated with Nate from Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> don't know the reference. Never will. <laughs> Paul, Paul, Paul refuses to ever watch Ted Lasso. Mm. Uh, Paul, before we get into it, can you remind people what is it that we do on the Curbsiders and what will we, what will we be doing this evening? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. As a reminder, we are usually the, well, we're always the internal medicine podcast, and we typically use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. The hotcakes, the beloved hotcakes episodes are a little bit different in that we each have reviewed an article that is exciting or interesting or potentially even practice changing TBD and sort of went through it and tried to apply um, some critical analysis to it and decide if it's um, how we feel about it and try to learn a little bit about how studies are done in the process. Yeah. That's right. And a reminder to the audience, this and most episodes are available for CME for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And we'll we'll kind of stick to a format. So first up, we're going to have these hot cakes where we go a little bit more in depth. And then at the end, we have a couple more newsy items. So we're going to be talking about ketamine. We're going to be talking about uh, a new non-hormonal therapy for menopause. Paul's going to be talking about metformin and whether or not it works to treat uh, long COVID, prevent long, long COVID. COVID. Yep, just in the nick of time. Yeah, <laughs> just in the nick of time. Uh, we'll talk about the new breast cancer screening recommendations and uh, finally Kratom, which if you haven't heard of it, uh, Paul's going to tell us about it. It's a new party drug, question mark? Not really. No, yeah, over the if, counter. By new, you mean centuries old and just Americans are misusing it, per question mark. Uh, we'll talk about it. Right. Okay. New to me, Paul, because I am not cool. <laughs> All right, Rahul. So, can you tell us for, uh, the article you chose? Uh, what's the article, the authors, and you know, let's get started. So, the paper that I'm going to be talking about is the Elect D study, and this was a paper by Anand and colleagues, and this was published in a June 2023 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. So what was this paper all about? This was a study looking at the use of ketamine for severe treatment-resistant depression. So what was the research question here? The question that the authors were asking was, is ketamine non-inferior to electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, in the treatment of moderate to severe resistant depression? So why is this study important, particularly for generalists like us to know about? Well, about one in three patients with major depression have a suboptimal treatment response, and that's even after two good trials of uh, effective antidepressants. And ECT is something that generally works well for patients in this situation, but there are downsides. 
for example, it's not available everywhere. It requires general anesthesia. Um, there is still some stigma and fear around the use of ECT. And there are adverse effects, mainly affecting patients' cognition and memory that are thought to persist for up to a few months. Um, ketamine is increasingly being used at sub-anesthetic doses for treatment-resistant depression, but prior studies have not really been a slam dunk that this has high efficacy. So this study aimed to clarify that. So how is the study done? Well, this was a randomized, unblinded, pragmatic non-inferiority trial. And this was done at five hospitals in the United States from 2017 to 2022. And this was funded by the nonprofit uh, Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, or PCORI. Um, patients were randomized one-to-one to get either ECT done three times a week for three weeks or to receive IV ketamine, which was administered two times a week for the same duration, three weeks. And patients could continue their existing medications, um, you know, with their sort of usual providers. Um, these were not standardized. And the primary outcome in this study was clinical response, which was measured as a 50% or greater reduction from baseline severity on a questionnaire, the QUIDS SR16. And this was basically an inventory that's a quantification of the SIGI CAPS sim- symptoms that you learn about in med school. Um, so the primary outcome was assessed at three weeks, and then patients who had a response to either treatment were followed for a total of six months for assessment of secondary outcomes and durability. So who were the patients in this study? Um, well, patients in this study had to have at least moderate depression, and they had to have failed at least two antidepressants previously. And patients couldn't have had psychotic features because there's some worry that ketamine might worsen um, uh, symptom control in patients with psychosis. So the included patients were in their mid-40s, roughly equal proportions, men and women. Essentially, everybody was non-Hispanic white, and 90% were outpatients. And these people all had pretty severe depression. The average duration was over 20 years with a median of five previous episodes. Um, the majority of patients had a family history of depression, and one in three patients in this study had a history of attempting suicide. A lot of patients had concomitant anxiety, um, but comorbid substance use disorders were uncommon. So what did the study show? What were the top-line results before we get into discussing some cool things about it? So the top-line findings were that at three weeks, 55% of patients who got ketamine had a clinical response compared with only 41% of patients getting ECT. And the non-inferiority margin in this study was 10%. And the absolute difference in this study was above uh, the, it was positive, uh, well above the negative uh, non-inferiority margin. So 14% difference between groups. And the confidence interval was nowhere near that non-inferiority margin. So the authors determined that uh, ketamine was non-inferior to ECT. And a lot of the secondary endpoints really supported this. Um, and uh, I will note, though, that uh, both groups saw an improvement in quality of life uh, at the end of the six-month uh, follow-up period. Um, so before I open it to discussion, the last thing I'll just add is that in terms of adverse events, uh, there were differences. Musculoskeletal problems were more common among people who got ECT. And as you might expect, dissociative symptoms were more common with ketamine. Yeah. Yeah. And the ECT... ECT is basically in, inducing a seizure, I guess, uh, as part of how it works, which is which is probably why people think it's scary. Uh, you know, Rahul, I noticed because this was an open label trial that there was when they they talked about how some patients after they found out which group they were randomized to, there was about thirty patients dropped out of the ECT group, maybe because of that scariness that we were just talking about, and only eight patients dropped out of the ketamine group. So I was just wondering if like patients, if this was kind of marketed as a ketamine study and that was the big draw because at least 
I hear a lot about ketamine. Maybe it's just like the the podcasts I listen to, people are talking about ketamine. Um, or or the know, podcast that you actually run, because it was actually even brought up with our substance use disorder <laughs> episode that just came out, I think, this week. Yeah, the, true. So in, in my world in general, thank you, Paul. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> in my in my world, ketamine is, it just seems to be a hot topic. Just everyone's getting ketamine. It's just willy-nilly Psychedelics. Out there. <laughs> yeah, as do psychedelics. And um, so I just wonder, Rahul, do you think that that is a potential source of bias for this positive trial? Yeah. So great question. And I will say, I mean, it's not just you. Ketamine, I do think is really entering the zeitgeist for like the treatment of resistant depression. And, you know, I, as a, as a generalist, I've had to do several sort of pre-procedure evaluations for patients who are going to receive ketamine, um, for, for severe depression. So this is something that I think, you know, we'll start seeing more and more of. Um, but yeah, as to your question, so this um, in the vernacular is a positive study because the primary endpoint of non-inferiority was shown. And one uh, thing I'll just say that I, I put out there for listeners who I'm just inviting you to please tell me what I'm missing about this, but I think that the results are compatible with superiority of ketamine uh, over ECT because the confidence interval doesn't include zero for the absolute difference there. The authors are very cautious about this and they don't actually say superiority in the paper. Mm -hmm. And I have tweeted about this and nobody is responding to me. So <laughs> I've been uh, watching. Anybody, yeah. Yeah. If I was hoping somebody was going to have the answer, um, I'm, I'm wondering what I'm missing here. So listeners, um, please, you know, uh, help us solve this mystery. And with, um, with the non-inferior margin of 10%, so it could be no, no more than 10% worse. Right. But it was actually like 14% better, but in that, absolute terms. That is correct. That is a perfect statement in words of what that means. I love it. Um, so yeah, so to your, and so listeners, help us learn, uh, participate in this with us. Uh, you, what am I missing? So uh, at a minimum, uh, the authors found that ketamine was non-inferior to ECT. And Matt, the point you raise about the people who were, um, who kind of didn't complete the assigned treatment, uh, this is an important thing. This is called differential loss to follow-up. 16% of patients randomized to ECT didn't do it. Only 3% of people assigned to ketamine didn't do it. So this is a source of selection bias that occurs after randomization. And, you know, in this study, since we know that ECT is an effective therapy, I would expect this to bias towards ketamine looking better because mm -hmm. more people in the ECT group did not get an effective therapy. So that's an important source of bias towards, you know, ketamine looking better there. This podcast is brought to you by Indeed. Is hiring challenging? Yes. Do you love a challenge? Also, yes. You need a hiring partner that can help you rise to the challenge. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed is a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment Indeed's they sponsor the a job, job site, where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring platform delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to TalentNest 2019. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Offer is good for limited 
time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Again, just go to Indeed.com slash internal medicine and support the show by saying that you heard about it on this podcast. Yes, this podcast, The Curbsiders. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Paul, and we we talked a little bit about this. I mean, I, I don't know that I've seen a case of ketamine dependence, but I believe it's a condition that exists. And the, the editorial that accompanied this in New England Journal, the editorialist was just like, remember we had that this opioid epidemic because we were just kind of prescribing people opioids. It, you know, do you have that kind of concern, Paul? As a you're you're hot, largely an addiction medicine physician these days, even though you like to be humble about it. It's <laughs> You know, I've not seen enough of it to be concerned yet. It, it seems like it's on the uptick, and I, I think that your point is well taken, that there just seems in general to be out there in the gestalt a sense of wild enthusiasm for ketamine as a use for almost anything. Like, I remember for certain withdrawal syndromes, I've seen it sort of uh, thought for for depression, for management of alcohol use disorder. Like, it just it seems like we're, we're just trying to look for reasons to use ketamine now. So I just, mm-hmm. I think the wild enthusiasm is the thing that makes me probably a little bit more cautious. So I've not seen it as a reason to be concerned in the patient population that I've taken care of yet, but that doesn't mean it, it can't happen. And I just want to say there's one other source of bias that I could identify for um, ketamine looking better in this study. And that was something that the uh, editorialist pointed out in the editorial. This is out of my area of subject matter expertise. So this is an example of an area where having subject matter expertise can really enhance your critical appraisal. Um, but the editorialist talks about how in this study, all of the ECT treatments started out as unilateral. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, from what I understand as a layman, you know, the intent of that is to try to reduce the incidence of side effects, but that's also uh, less effective than bilateral ECT. And uh, 40% of patients in this study had to be switched to bilateral ECT. So, you know, if they started with a less effective version of ECT than what, you know, would be done for patients like this in the real world, that's another potential source of bias for ketamine yeah. uh, looking better. Rahul, so I think we should get a hotcakes rating for this. And, and you know, what what's your final take home? Is this, do you think this is practice changing? Not that you're prescribing either of these therapies, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, from the outside looking in, I think this is a pretty well-designed study. Um, there are, you know, are a couple sources of bias towards ketamine looking better, but what this study did um, persuade me of is that at least in the short term, there don't seem to be um, obvious drawbacks to the use of ketamine. And looking at the primary outcome in different ways with different surveys and using sort of different cutoffs, the results showed some consistency. So this is kind of encouraging, particularly for people who can't get ECT due to access or other contraindications. I think ketamine could emerge as uh, an important uh, tool in the in the arsenal for these patients. So mm-hmm. I'm going to give this four out of five hotcakes. I'm excited. Yeah. And I I just think, you know, we, we've raised our concerns about dependence. So I think enough said about that. I mean, that should be with any substance you're introducing, um, this, this kind of substance anyway. All right. So, uh, we'll move and on. I will say Paul? just real quick. I've, I don't think I've ever had a patient go that is identified as having been treated with ECT. So I, I just, in terms of having another possible option that is available to someone who has, um, treatment resistance is also, you know, exciting in itself. So you're right. Like yeah. you may not be doing it ourselves, but that's, it's just to have something in our arsenal is, is just at least nice to know about. Yeah. So, uh, I, I covered Paul Skylight One. Uh, Mm -hmm. this is a study of a new non-hormonal therapy for the vasomotor symptoms of menopause, which we talked about, Paul. Um, I can't remember if it was SGM or ACP, one of our, one of our conferences that we attended this year. 
Yeah, maybe even both. So this was a study by Lederman et al., and this was the use of fezolinotent for the treatment of moderate to severe vasomotor symptoms of menopause. Um, it came out in The Lancet in 2023. And uh, Paul, what do you think of the Skylight One as a title for this study? How do you, as a big trial head? Yeah, no, I appreciate you asking because I think, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of editorial to add in terms of sort of your review of this, but I don't... <laughs> think I understand the pun in terms of relation to vasomotor symptoms of menopause, if there even is one. Is like, I, do they just, I don't, how does Skylight relate to that? Because I feel like I'm missing something important here. And if it doesn't, then boo. Like it just, it's just. You know what, Paul? I couldn't figure that out. Audience, uh, tweet at us if, if you know why uh, it was t- titled that. It's not, it's not, they didn't cram in an acronym that I could find. So I, I'm not sure, Paul. But uh, they had Skylight one and two, they had a Skylight four, you know, they, they've been using this name. Right. All over they the really place. lean into it. So like, it has yeah. to be something. I feel like I'm just missing something. So apologies to yeah. <laughs> the trial. So the, so the question here was, does fezolinotent, uh, which is a neurokinin three receptor antagonist, does it reduce the frequency and severity of vasomotor symptoms and, uh, improve quality of life? They were also looking at safety. Um, this is important because not everyone can receive hormonal therapies just because of contraindications. Some people don't want to take hormones. The 2023 uh, NAMS, the North American Menopause Society, has 2023 um, a position statement on non-hormonal therapy. They actually included this as one of the highest levels of evidence in there. Uh, I'm used to using SSRIs, SNRIs, gabapentin, some of these for hot flashes, but uh, this is this is now included in in the higher level of evidence um, within that guideline by NAMS, and so so I was I was surprised to see that uh, th- those ca- the guidelines came out in like June, and this this study is from April, so they they got it in there pretty quickly. Yeah. Um. So why is uh? Let me tell you the top line results. So this was another positive study. And uh, they looked at two different doses, the 30 milligram and the 45 milligram dose of fezolinotent, and they found that it is uh, it is efficacious for reducing one of the co-primary endpoint, which was frequency and severity of symptoms. And the women had to have at least seven hot flashes a day. Uh, actually, at baseline, all the groups had something like 10 or 11 hot flashes, and both of the fezolinotent groups by the end of 12 weeks, it had decreased to five hot flashes or less um, on average per day. And in the in the placebo group, they, d- they decreased to seven hot flashes or so per day. So both groups decreased, but uh, two points, you know, two, two less hot flashes per day with the, the treatment. The severity was a little harder to interpret because they were looking at a scale of like one to three, mild, moderate, or severe. And they they said that it decreased by like 0.25 points on a scale of three. So I don't really know what to make of that, but it was statistically significant. Um, they tried to look at sleep and they, they actually didn't, uh, it did not improve sleep disturbance based on the scale they were looking at. It seemed like there was some improvement in quality of life. I tried to look at this menopause quality of life questionnaire they use, Paul, and I, I couldn't, it was a little bit hard for me to interpret the least mean square change uh, in that. This was actually a question I had for Rahul in terms of this least mean squared comparison. Like I, when would you use that? Why would you use that? I tried to sort of parse out the graphs and the figures in, in the study. And I was like, well, those lines look bigger than those lines. But other than that, I couldn't quite, couldn't quite figure it out. So would you mind sort of talking me through that concept specifically? Yeah, boy, you know, I, this is an area that 
with regard to how it's done in this study, I'm not sure I understand well enough to be able to explain. Um, but I do think that uh, the use of this measure, really what Matt was describing with, you know, the the ordinal scale of like, you know, mild, moderate, severe, and then, you know, showing a, a sort of quantitative difference between those two, the way that they've reported this is not easy to interpret. And, you know, that's in and of itself kind of an important learning point in my view, because, you know, if results are not easily interpretable, then it's kind of hard to know what to do with them. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, to me that the 0.25 suggests that that's like a, you know, less than one category improvement as the average treatment effect for this medication. What might be more informative, informative is, you know, what percentage of women, you know, went from severe to moderate or moderate to mild. And that mm. data might be available in the supplemental data. Yeah. Um, so when I encounter a uh, outcome measure that I don't really understand, I just think to myself, what would be the sort of, you know, way that I would want to use this or how would I operationalize this? And then I look for that expression of the results um, in the supplement. Yeah, oh, that's great. So I like that. I, I didn't think to do that to, to look for how, how many women went from severe to mild or or, you know, at least decrease their category fully. I, I just think that um, in general, let me let me make a complaint to both of you about research. It is, I know we have this patient-centered outcomes are being coming more and more, but it's like, it's, they put it in terms that like, you have to be a statistician to understand. Like, why not say like, we use this scale, a meaningful change on this scale is this many points. We saw this many points. Like, I feel like sometimes they, they don't want to give that information because they just want to have the, the positive headline of, we had a, a p-value that was significant, but really that doesn't translate always or often doesn't translate to something that I care about or the patient cares about. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll just, you know, put myself out there. I theoretically am the person in the room who's like supposed to be the most interested and know about this stuff. But I mean, I encounter stuff all the time that I uh, don't know how to interpret. So I do a lot of Googling. I do a lot of scouring Twitter to see what the discussion has been on some of this stuff. So mm -hmm. yeah, after we're done recording, I'll spend some time uh, looking into this and I'll, I'll report back. Maybe not tonight. Go to sleep. Maybe, maybe <laughs> yeah, another day. I feel like this is Typical a perfect snapshot of our, of our our different personalities, by the way. So Matt is like, I think it might be obfuscation. Rahul's like, this is a chance to learn. I'm like, and me, I'm like, I must be a dummy. Like, it's just, I think this is like, this sums us up perfectly. <laughs> All right. Well, to the, let, let me just Sorry, back uh, to the wrap line. up one or two more points about this study. So there were three groups, two groups. They got a 30 milligram dose, a 45 milligram dose of the study drug Fezolinitin or, or a mat, exact match placebo. And then um, this was... They they had to screen 2,200 patients, Rahul, just to get uh, about 175 patients in each group. And so I, we both calculated this is about 25%, only 25% of the patients screened made it into the study. Does that seem like a source of bias for you uh, as far as the results go, uh, this being a positive trial? Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Grammarly. If you know me, it should be no surprise that I struggle a little bit with tone because I am self-deprecating, I am irony poisoned, I am sometimes wishy-washy, and that is even sometimes reflected in my writing. But Grammarly Premium is here to help me with that. See, Grammarly Premium has advanced tone suggestions that help you communicate confidently and reframe your words to be more positive and productive. It has these confident communication suggestions that help you build strong relationships and get things done at work. So for instance, rather than saying me, we may want to consider providing an update, Grammarly would say, why don't you say we should consider providing an update instead? And you can see that's more directive without being negative. 
And Grammarly helps reframe negative language to be more solution-focused so you can better collaborate. So rather than saying this treatment plan isn't right, uh, you would say this treatment plan needs to be different. And you're saying the same thing, but in a more positive and sort of troop rallying kind of way. I have used Grammarly before to help curb my natural tendencies to uh, be negative or ambivalent or less than confident. And it's it's really extraordinarily helpful. And it has all the other stuff too. It has the things to help you with your spelling, your grammar. It has conciseness suggestions, which I have found hugely helpful. And when it comes to work, communication is key. It doesn't matter if you have a writing job or not. Everything you do requires some degree of communication and Grammarly works where you do. So every important project gets done on time. The right tone can move any project forward when you get it just right with Grammarly. So go to grammarly.com slash tone to download to learn more about Grammarly Premium's advanced tone suggestions. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash tone. Again, that is G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash tone. Does that seem like a source of bias for you uh, as far as the results go, uh, this being a positive trial? Yeah. I mean, there's not that many tools we have available to kind of decide how highly selected is a study population. One of the only tools that I think is routinely reported is in the concert diagram, the percentage of pa- or the number of patients who are screened and the number of patients who are ultimately enrolled. So I feel the best about studies that enroll a high proportion of patients who are screened. To me, that suggests that the population is not highly selected or cherry picked. Yeah. Um, you know, you feel great about a study that's 95%. You may worry a little bit about a study that's, you know, 5 to 10% and ask why. That's not by, uh, you know, uh, just de facto a source of concern. It's just a signal that that's a question we right. should ask. And in this study, the biggest category of patients who are excluded was listed as uh, other. So no specific reason given there. So that does raise my concern a little bit for um, selection yeah. bias in terms of the study population. But, but the exclusion criteria couldn't have a cancer either mm-hmm. current or pre- previous, unless it was like a basal cell skin cancer, mm-hmm. any chronic kidney or liver disease, even even blood pressure above 130 systolic was like a no-go. Mm-hmm. Or if you were treated, then it sounded like there was a little wiggle room there for the authors or, you know, for the this trialist to include you. But they this was really a healthy group of women between the ages of 40 and 65. Um, and they were from mostly uh, like, U.S. and European country, like U.S., Canada, and some European countries. So, um, you know, I, I do think there were some sources of bias. Safety outcome wise, um, they were they were keyed in on some liver stuff because there there were some other agents in this um, family of family of there there there's these Paul there's these things called the candy neurons K N D Y it's sure. an acronym. No, I know that. And yeah. uh, and uh, this neurokine. This neurokinin, um, neurokinin. Let me let me make sure I'm saying the right name now. Yes, neurokinin three receptor antagonist uh, is one of a couple different agents that they're trying to use to target these neurons, which are involved in thermoregulation and hot flashes, essentially. And uh, one of these drugs previously had some signal for liver damage. That's why they're really keyed in on the liver. And practically speaking, for listeners. This has been approved, FDA approved, at a dose of 45 milligrams once a day for vasomotor symptoms of menopause based on this trial and some of the other ones. And they want you to check liver enzymes at baseline three months, six months, nine months for the first year. So basically every three months for the first year that they're on the drug. In this study, about one patient in the placebo group, two patients in the 30 milligram fesulinitin group, and zero patients in the 45 milligram group had liver enzymes above three times upper limit of normal, but no one had like 
catastrophic, you know, there's no liver, liver failure. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, it seems like it was okay. Um, uh, Rahul, before I give my hotcakes rating and, you know, whether or not this will be practice changing for me, did you want to give any other, uh, any other points about this one? Yeah. I, the only other thing that, um, stuck out to me about this was, um, a phenomenon that we've talked about on prior hotcakes episodes, and that's the idea of regression to the mean. Mm-hmm. And this is something that you have to look out for anytime, um, enrollment in a study is contingent on a patient having some extreme value of something. Yeah. The seven so this, hot flashes. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I mean, not being a person who's ever experienced menopause, I don't know if that's a lot. It sounds like a lot. And, <laughs> um, you know, the patients, um, in, I think in all the groups ended up having a mean of a 10 or so 10 to 11 per day. Yeah. And as you mentioned, we saw that even the placebo group, uh, declined down to like six to seven or something. And figure mm-hmm. two shows that nicely. Um, so, um, you know, that, that is something that could be explained by a beneficial placebo effect. Um, or that could be this phenomenon of regression to the mean, just by when you select a group of people based on an extreme value, um, over time, they tend to regress to the mean. So if you didn't have a placebo group in this study, you wouldn't know if that's why, uh, patients who got the study drug improved or not. So this is another illustration of why, you know, placebo groups are, are really critical. Yeah. So, you know, I will give this hotcakes rating, maybe a 3.5. Um, I mean, I'm a little, I'm always a little skeptical of these fancy new medications, industry funded, you know, four, four of the authors of this trial were, uh, were employed by the Estellas Pharma who makes, makes the medication. Um, so, you know, I, I'm still going to wait a little bit that I think maybe w- w- if this starts getting rolled out to more and more patients, like will some of these liver issues become more prominent? Uh, I think in practice, it's hard to get a group of patients this healthy. So I'm going to give it 3.5 because it, a lot of my patients in the 40 to 65 would have been excluded from this. So I'm not going to be rushing to start prescribing it for patients. Um, but I do think overall, you know, otherwise well done, well done trials, three, 3.5 hotcakes out of five. It seems fair. Like I'm with you. I, it's so new, and we have non-hormonal medications, even though they're not necessarily FDA approved. Like I was trying to look this up before we started doing this. Like the venlafaxine seems to reduce symptoms by about yeah. like forty percent. So not not too far away from what's being reported here, especially since don't fully understand the results here. So I, I almost I will probably lean on the ones where I know that there venlafaxine is certainly an imperfect drug and has its own issues, but at least I know what those issues are, right? Because it's been around We're, for a while. So I might just stall a little bit and kind of see what else shakes out before I have too much yeah. wild enthusiasm for, for this class. There's a special Paxil salt that's like 7.5 milligrams daily that is uh, FDA approved yep. and has has evidence. Um, yeah, so anyway, you know, there's, um, there's. I think we need to hear more on this, but I do, I do think the audience needs to be aware of it because patients are going to be asking about it. I'm sure they're going to be advertising. It's included in some guidelines with a high recommendation, so I think we're going to start seeing this out there. Uh, Paul, you want to get to your... Your article? Sure. Yeah, no, timely. Um, I, I'm going to tell you all about an article by um, Bramante et al. And apologies, I mispronounced the name from Lancet Infectious Diseases from just, I think, like this month. Like this is actually, I don't think even in print yet. This is still e-published right now. And this is the outpatient treatment of COVID-19 and incidence of post-COVID-19 condition over 10 months. This is the COVID out trial, a multi-center randomized quadruple blind parallel group phase three trial. So rolls right off the tongue. But basically, it's what they were looking at. So this is, it's an interesting um, paper because this is a secondary outcome from another study looking at 
reducing the incidence of severe COVID um, with uh, several medications I'll talk about. So we presumably our listeners have heard of COVID-19 at this point now and, and also long COVID <laughs> and prevention of long COVID. It, it's it's starting to feel blessedly kind of less relevant right now. Like I, I'm not treating and seeing as much COVID, though it's still out there and I still think we're thinking about. Um, so in, in any case, I, I think the paper does have some relevance and also maybe even mechanistically understanding what's going on here. So the research question, just to actually get to the meat of what the paper is, is does outpatient treatment with metformin, ivermectin, or fluvoxamine soon after COVID infection reduce the risk of long COVID? So the investigators were looking at, do any of these study medications reduce the incidence of long COVID? And it's the long COVID question is important because of all the patients that have had COVID, which feels like everybody at this point now, there's like almost 20% according to the CDC reporting symptoms of long COVID, which and unfortunately, it's I, to my mind, long COVID is not super well defined other than having symptoms that persist longer than three months that can't be explained by something else, which is still seems a little bit unsatisfying to me, but I just don't think we have anything better right now. Um, and it's, it's also worth noting that long COVID disproportionately affects um, patients of, who are from racial and ethnic minority populations. So it's, it's important to kind of figure out what's going on here and what, what things that we can do to address it. So I'll, I'll talk about the study design in a second, but the top line result, the thing that we should be thinking about as we're going through the study design is that outpatient treatment of acute COVID with metformin, specifically of the medications that we're talking about, reduced long COVID incidence by 41%. And this is important because it's that's a big number. Um, we have a something that has a fairly high incidence and prevalence, and metformin safe and low cost and easy for people to get. So, how how do they actually figure this stuff out? Um, any questions so far before I roll on? Because that was a lot of yeah. words out of my mouth. One one comment was the because I, I, I looked this up because seventy percent of the patients in this study had Delta variant and mm-hmm. right and. Um, maybe a third or something had the Omicron variant. And I was, cause now Omicron is, you know, Omicron has been the most recent variant as of this recording. And yeah. look, there was a paper that just came out recently talking about how about 10% of patients are progressing to get long COVID uh, after the Omicron variant. Um, so that, that was my comment. The, the second, the second, uh, thing I wanted to ask Paul, the, the 41%, that was a relative reduction in COVID, right? Correct. It was a, the absolute reduction was like 4%, was something like 4% or something. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Rahul, can, so can we call that a number needed to treat of 25 with like, based on this, is this the right type of study where you can calculate a number needed to treat like absolute risk reduction of 4%, you know, roughly 25 Yes. Um, the the uh, short answer is yes. Anytime you have an absolute risk reduction, you can um, equivalently think of it as a number needed to treat over the t- time frame of the study. Mm-hmm. There is a slightly longer answer when you're using person time data like this that is you know not important for us to go into it on the air. But I did find this explained beautifully in a short letter that we can link in the uh, additional reading section for this one. Okay, great. Thank you. All right, Paul. So sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. I think this is this is good. And I so, but how the study was kind of designed, I I am fascinated by just because it's complicated yet understandable, which is um, my my perfect um, combination as far as I'm concerned. So this was, <laughs> as I mentioned, investigator initiated randomized quadruple blind, which means I think that you had to have your eyes closed when you wrote the paper. I think that's the last part of the blinding. It was placebo controlled, and the the primary outcome that they looked at uh, was severe COVID-19 by day 14. And then the secondary outcome, as I mentioned in the focus of this paper, is the incidence of long COVID. And so basically what they did is they followed the patients um, over the course of 300 days with monthly follow-up, um, identifying who got long COVID by asking them, did your doctor tell you that you had long COVID? And then they went to the chart and sort of confirmed that. 
<laughs> and the, the patients were recruited remotely. There was no actual patient, direct patient contact. It was via patient portal, online advertising, and then there were advertisements of the six clinical sites. And you could make an argument that that might select for people who have a little bit more access to technology or sort of um, a higher technological literacy. Um, but not, not, not so much that I, I had a, a huge problem with that. And it's a factorial design so that the patients were randomized. All right, brace yourselves already. They received either metformin plus ivermectin, placebo plus ivermectin, uh, metformin plus fluvoxamine, placebo plus fluvoxamine, metformin plus placebo, or placebo plus placebo. So everybody got two pills, and it's this factorial uh, design that allowed them to kind of compare and contrast the actual true effect of the medications that they were looking for, if I understand things correctly. And the medications, so were were given for 14 days. They received delivered. They were prepackaged. Um, and the, the statistic that they cited, which I found fascinating, is the time between consent and the ingestion of the first dose of study medication was on average less than a day. So by the time that the patients were like uh, qualified for it and consented for it, they had the, the medication the same day and it was in their stomach. So I fascinating how efficient things were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after 60 days, surveys were sent um, every 30 days, uh, up to day 300 via email, text, phone call, letter, depending on what the patient actually preferred. So, so far it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I mean, it's this was done, you know, this was still, I think a lot of the country was still locked down when this was happening too. So that's even more impressive that they were doing this. Yeah, and the, the analysis, I know, Rahul, maybe you can jump in here and correct me if I'm wrong, but the decision to study this, I think, occurred after they had already designed the study to look at the primary outcome. And then I, I don't even think long COVID had been sort of defined as a thing. And then they sort of decided yeah. to kind of attack this on as, as a thing to sort of study an additional, which is not, a, again, not a criticism necessarily, but I just think it's interesting that this was pretty early on in things when they were actually putting this together. That's right. Um, so the, the patients that were included in this, they were age 30 to 85. They had to be either overweight or obese um, and had COVID symptoms fewer than seven days with a documented positive um, antibody PCR or antigen test within three days of enrollment. Patients were excluded if they had prior COVID, if they were previously exposed to the study drugs, which I think is really important here, which means, you know, for most patients who have, say, type 2 diabetes or metformin, were not included in the study population. Uh, And then patients who were treated with any of the EUA, FDA medications were also excluded. And vaccination status did not impact enrollment. And then also, importantly, pregnant patients could be, pregnant and lactating patients could be enrolled, but were only randomized to metformin um, just for, for safety's sake. So that is the study. So it, at the end of the day, it sh- you know, we, we talked about the sort of decrease that showed for the patients solely with metformin. The other study medications did not show a decreased incidence of long COVID. And in fact, that, that was consistent with the primary outcome as well. So they, the metformin reduced the development of severe COVID-19. Um, the other medications did not. And then similarly with the secondary outcome that's being looked at here, only metformin showed a reduction in the development of long COVID. The fluvoxamine, the ivermectin did not show those things. So this was the one medication that seemed to actually have real promise. This was surprising to me because I, I just remember, you know, I, I remember this, the initial results of this study coming out because that was sort of, you know, I, that was part of the ivermectin fight that I, I think is somewhat Maybe it's still going on. Thank I, don't God know, that's I try to yeah. keep my <laughs> try to keep my head out of it. But uh-huh. uh, the ivermectin uh, that that was part of that fluvoxamine. Because I, I had patients calling me asking, should I take fluvoxamine? Should I take yeah. ivermectin? You know, these were we were trying to find off the shelf medications that already were around, cheap, and we know are safe to to give to patients that would that would work. And as you said, they tacked this on. Um, but I, what is the mechanism with this metformin? I mean, did they did they say? 
They, so they have a theory. Now, the theory is that there are some, you know, they, I feel like this is the usual theory for most things, that some anti-inflammatory um, properties that for listeners at home, there was some hand-waving going on there. And then there is potentially antiviral effect, though I looked at the papers that was referenced, and that seems to be primarily an in vitro and ex vivo effect, and that has not been demonstrated mm. sort of in other circumstances. So it, it really is purely theoretical at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so Paul, I mean, do you, is this going to change practice for you? Uh, you know, where we are right now, uh, fortunately, I, I think people are demasked, uh, largely demasked and, uh, not, we're not having our hospitals fill up with patients with severe COVID. So I'm not sure if you'll be prescribing this for your patients if they call you and say, I have COVID. No, I think that's that's right. This is not practice changing for me. I, I do think it's compelling because I think it hopefully offers some mechanistic information for people smarter than me as to who might develop long COVID and sort of how it works and sort of the some of the immunology behind that. Like I think the relationship between COVID-19 and the development of new diabetes, for instance, is really interesting and sort of yeah. You know, patients with diabetes had worse outcomes, and yet these patients without diabetes who were put on metformin seem to do better. So, what do we do with that information? So, I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'll leave it to uh, the pharmacologist and the immunologist and the virologist, and, and on and on to kind of figure out exactly what that means. But it seems like there there has to be some sort of mechanism there that hopefully can be taken advantage of, maybe help patients or prevent, um, God forbid, in future you know pandemics, future pandemics, post viral yeah. post viral complications. So, I, I think it's promising and compelling, but is not practice changing. I agree. Mm. So it's, if I were to give a hotcakes rating, I, I think probably three for being interesting, but I have to dock it for not being immediately practice changing. Mm. Yeah. I, I, when I read this paper, I couldn't help but think if I had read this in 2021, that would be a totally different uh, feeling for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, and, and it just is a reflection of the fact of, you know, and this is a problem that affects all of the literature on COVID therapeutics, which is that the study populations that those were carried out in um, just don't exist anymore. Um, you know, pine tree, um, the you know studies of uh, nirmatrelvir, ritonavir, um, those all, all the studies you know were carried out in a largely unvaccinated population. And nowadays, you know, it's thought that upwards of 95% of people have some degree of immunity through right. a combination of vaccination and prior infection. And, and in this study, in um, their subgroup analyses in figure three, they did uh, break out the results by vaccination status. And the effect was um, attenuated completely in patients um, who were vaccinated. So, you know, the utility of this knowledge in 2023, um, I, I agree, it's we're, we're really in a different place than we were um, when we first learned about long COVID. And, you know, all the pe- millions of people who are affected by persistent symptoms, I mean, this is still a, an unmet need and deserves real attention and careful uh, thought and problem solving. But um, th- I'm just worried that this study population is going to be really hard to identify um, mm. in the current day and age. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Find someone who has not been exposed or who's not had a COVID infection now is it's it's, it's almost yeah. not easy to do it. Or, or been so. vaccinated sixteen times. <laughs> yeah, yes, um, exactly. So let's let's move on. We have two quick hot takes. So the USPSTF, Paul, who we've been doing some shows with recently, uh, have put out a draft recommendation on breast cancer screening, which is certain to make a lot of headlines um, once it's finalized. And I, I think we're certainly going to look at. Right now, we're screening people at age 50 every other year. So every two years, starting at age 50 for women who are at average risk. And now they're going to start to recommend 
uh, screening every other year for women at age 40 up through age 74. And um, so this is a big change, dropping the age by 10 years. Uh, they, they say that this is driven by we're seeing breast cancers in younger women. And also there's some disparities, especially particularly black women tend to have worse outcomes with breast cancer. And so they're hoping that by starting the screening age earlier, more people will get screened, will catch more cancers, more people will benefit from this. Um, the other two things they comment on are what to do with women over age 75, and they they continue to give that an I grade, um, which is, we don't know, you know, inconclusive. Yeah. And the same thing for what to do with women who have dense breasts, which again, uh, it, they, they gave an inconclusive rating there. So uh, w- do we get supplemental MRIs or ultrasound, um, which is a question I get all the time and I just don't have a good answer for. So basically we do whatever the patient you know, whatever the patient wants. Usually they're coming into me with a with an opinion about what to do. Paul, any comments on that? No, I, I think that'll be the challenge. Uh, I'll, I'll be curious to kind of parse through all of the, the data that went into the recommendations and, and caused the revision. But, you know, it's there in, by moving the age to a younger bracket, we're going to be seeing more women with dense breasts. Um, and since there is uncertainty as to what to do with that, it'll be, I'll be curious to sort of see how that plays out. But uh, it's, yeah. Yeah, so I'll, I'll have to really do the deep dive in literature. Yeah. So the, the the American College of Radiology and the Society for Breast Imaging, they they put out a joint public comment, Paul. And this is not just like, a, we think this is good, we think this is bad. This is like an um, 11-page document. Uh, there's like 37 references. They're talking <laughs> line by line. They go through about why they what they agree with, what they disagree with. So they agree with the screening age of 40, but they think it should be annual screening of women starting at age Mm -hmm. 40. Um, and they think that they, they think that we should continue to screen women, not just indiscriminately stop at age 74, um, but that we should continue as long as the woman is in reasonably good health and has a, a reasonable life expectancy. So, um, people I'll link to that as well. It just seems like to me, looking at this, someone who's not an epidemiologist, this seems like you have a bunch of smart epidemiologists at USPSTF uh, and clinicians there, and then you have a bunch of smart people, radiologists, and the uh, you know the people in the Society for Breast Imaging who have just a differing uh, interpretation of the literature. And um, the the ACR and the Society for Breast Imaging were they were upset that none of no breast experts were included in the USPSTF, you know, group making the recommendation. That was one of what things they called out. But that's, um, you know, that's it. Rahul, as an epidemiologist, uh, any any comments on this? Is this normal for epidemiologists to fight over the same data set and have different conclusions? I mean, I, I think uh, you have both hit on important points about, you know, the challenges in translating recommendations for a population to the care of the individual patient. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were talking before, um, starting recording about, you know, if you have a patient who's, you know, uh, sort of living a very healthy life and, uh, you know, has a expected life expectancy of many more years, you might decide to continue, um, screening after, you know, the age at which, um, you know, the, the recommendations say you can start to peel that back. So yeah, it's, it takes a lot of, um, individualized thought and, um, this kind of, uh, tension exists a lot between clinical medicine and public health for sure. It's difficult. Yeah. 
All right, Paul. So take us home with, tell us a little bit about Kratom, which apparently it's it's not new, but maybe new to some people in the audience who aren't, you know, uh, who aren't in this, in the loop with this kind of thing. Yeah, it's something I heard of relatively recently. And I think I saw it even advertised when I was sort of doing my my tour of that, I believe it was the Southwest, um, where I saw sort of billboards for it and sort of, you know, yeah. advertised availability. So it's, 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 it's around and has been around. So Kratom, for those of you who don't know, it is not a specific substance. And actually, so Kratom derives from the leaves of a tree that's indigenous to, to Southeast Asia, where it's actually been used there for centuries, um, as I wrestle with my cat, apologies, um, where it's been used for centuries um, as a medication, has been used to treat things like hypertension and chronic pain and cough and fever. It's been sort of, it's been used a lot. And the way it was traditionally used is you would either chew the leaves or brew it into a tea, um, which becomes relevant because, of course, as it's made its way west into the United States, we have now, we're now selling it in this hyper-concentrated form at doses that we had previously people had not been exposed <laughs> to. Because if a little bit is good, then a ton is, is obviously much better. Doesn't Red Bull have like a Kratom flavor uh, or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it is included in um, sodas as well, just to kind of, because the taste is apparently uh, fairly gnarly, uh, is my understanding. So anything <laughs> to kind of mask the flavor is, is probably an important thing to do. Um, and it, it contains, it has like over 40 alkaloids, I want to say. And probably the, mm-hmm. the most important ingredients, are the, and I, I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation, is metragenine, um, along with 7-hydroxymetragenine, which is actually a metabolite of metragenine. And it's it's fascinating. The recept it seems to work on every psychoactive receptor there is. So it is a mu agonist, um, but it hmm. works in such a way that it does not um, cause the respiratory depression and sedation that is sometimes seen with or, or seen with opioids. It also seems to have some adrenergic agonism. It has some alpha two agonism. So it's at different doses. It seems to have different effects and, and includes like people have been using it for increased alertness. They've been using it for analgesia. Uh, I've heard about it being used as almost like a pre workout. Because it makes if you're sort of treating pain and also trying kind of increasing your energy level, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, hmm. So yeah, I heard that the stimulant effects are at the low dose, right? It, mm-hmm. Forgive me if you already said this. the The stimulant no. effects are at the low dose, and the opioid effects, the pain effects, are more at the the higher as you go up on the doses. I believe that's my understanding, and then also the whether or not it, there is higher proportions of the seven hydroxymetrigenine is also important because that's the one that is really active. I think it's like more, I forget how many times, like 10 times more active than morphine, I want to say, and we'll go back and um, <laughs> correct the show notes if I'm wrong about that, but but certainly uh, more potent than morphine too. So it's, there's a lot of variability. Um, it, the, the question is, is like, should we be panicked about this? It's the, the legalities behind it are fascinating, by the way, Matt. It is not recognized by the FDA as a nutritional supplement. It was going to be made schedule one by the DEA, but there is like this large Kratom advocacy group because people are using it to treat their pain that actually halted that. And the DEA backed off, which I've never heard of anything like that. So it is now listed hmm. as a substance of concern, but is not federally yeah. legal. Um, it is it is not legal in c- certain states, um, but it is at the federal level. It, it sounds like as a result of advocacy by people who are really helped by it. Uh, it's just kind of being watched for right now. And it's important to note, I think. It's substance of concern. It is because of its mechanism. It seems to be safer than full opioids. Um, you know, the, the the adverse effects are largely from case reports. It's, it's not super well studied. Uh, it is not, you know, even overdoses associated with it are almost always in the setting of poly substance use. So it's mm. the the question is, is how worried should we be about that? And right now we just don't know yet. So I, I think that it's uh, so, so. There's this uh, Dr. Kirsten Smith, who's sort of a recognized national expert on this. She's a PhD. Um, who like has made Kratom kind of her whole expertise and she's quietly one of the most interesting people alive has made really sort of thoughtful and articulate pleas for just 
good research and good case reports on patients who are using it. So the whole big takeaway for, for our listeners is know that it exists. It's out there. It's, it's becoming more prevalent. Um, and maybe ask your patients who have existing opioid use or substance use about their use just um, so that you're aware of it. But like, it's not something to panic about yet, but just kind of keep your eyes open and sort of pay attention to it. There are, I should mention, case reports of people with um, Kratom use disorder and people who've developed the dependency and withdrawal syndromes to the extent that they are actually even treated with buprenorphine. So it is, you know, hmm. there, there are people wow. who are treating Kratom use disorder. So it's, it's, I'm not suggesting it's entirely benign. I'm just saying it is not super well studied and there's not a whole lot yeah. that's known well enough about to make sort of broad sweeping generalizations, but just kind of keep your eyes peeled because it's, it's becoming more prevalent here in the West. My recent trip south in gas stations in, I want to say Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, they, they just had it right there at the counter. So it's, gas yeah, stations. it's around. Gas oh, stations. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's gas yeah. stations, wow. head shops. Yeah. The other, I, I should mention real quick, and I'm sorry for running so long about this. The other really fascinating use for this is for harm reduction. So patients with opioid use disorder yeah. who are experiencing withdrawal have been using it to mitigate those withdrawal symptoms. And successfully, I, I might add, too. So it's there may even be a therapeutic role for it. Um, but again, it's just... It's sort of still very new kid on the block and not a lot is known about it, but it's just, mm -hmm. it's so it's just it's something to watch, I think. Paul, did you want to uh, promote a podcast by Dr. Kirsten Smith? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, she was on uh, the addiction psychology podcast. There was an episode with, with Dr. Smith about creative use specifically that I, I thought was okay. really eminently listenable and, and really, really helpful. Yeah. And she's written about 20,000 million papers on it. Um, so it's okay. we'll linked to a couple of good reviews in the show notes. Excellent. All right. Well, I think, guys, I think we've done a great show. Uh, any, any last comments before we get to an outro? I'll just say I was, uh, poking back through the methods section of the, uh, the hot flash treatment, uh, paper. And I stand by what I said. It's really confusing. I don't, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I, I fully understand. Um, I also asked chat GPT to explain it to me like I was a 12 year old and, uh, it didn't really make it that much clearer. So I feel better about that. Oh, that's a good idea. I should start doing that for statistical stuff to see if it helps. Uh, maybe, yeah. maybe it will. Which makes me feel world better, by the way, Rahul. Like if you're, <laughs> if this is where you're at, I feel like a hero. So that's great. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. There you go. It's your time to shine, Rahul. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus. Each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show. You can send us an email to askcurbsiders at gmail.com. And of course, you can find the show on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, really anywhere you get your podcasts. Reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org wanted to give a special thanks to Paul and Rahul for helping to write and produce this episode and to our whole Curbsiders team. Our show has technical production done by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Chris Chumanchu does our, our, moderates our Discord. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Rahul Bhavanth Ganatra. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you and goodbye. Bye.